Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Questions relating to immigration are among the most heated topics on both sides of the Atlantic. Western societies have changed dramatically because of large-scale immigration in the last decades. Christians are also engaged in the discussion, attempting to find direction from the biblical texts. Overwhelmingly, persons in leading positions both in the secular world and in churches and faith-based organizations support the concept of welcoming the stranger. The Bible is seen by them as urging us to open the borders as wide as we can. In the broader population, however, reservations remain. Marcus Zender, a Bible professor who has witnessed mass migration firsthand, both in Europe and in the United States, and who has been a migrant himself for over 20 years, attempts to step back and look at the whole of the complex biblical witness instead of cherry-picking passages that further a specific agenda. Join us as we talk with Marcus Zender about his recent book, The Bible and Immigration, A Critical and Empirical Reassessment. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Marcus Zender is professor of Old Testament and Semitics at Talbot School of Theology. He's also professor of Old Testament at ETF Leuven in Belgium and professor of Biblical Studies at Ansgar Theological Seminary in Norway. He is the author of numerous publications, including New Studies in the Book of Isaiah. Marcus, welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thank you very much, Michael. So once more, Marcus, tell us about yourself and where you're teaching and what's going on in your life. Yes, uh, I was born and raised in Switzerland um, in a very modest working class home um, that I mentioned that because it means for the American readers without privilege. And uh, then I did theological studies at the University of Basel in Switzerland, um, where I did my dissertation under Ernst Jenny, quite famous um, scholar in Hebrew and Semitic languages. And then I did my habilitation, which is the second doctoral degree in the European continental system. And I did studies for this second book in Jerusalem at the Hebrew University and at the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Harvard. And then I moved back to Switzerland and then I started becoming a migrant, so to speak. So I went first to Germany to teach at the seminary and then to Norway to teach at the seminary and then I combined Norway and Belgium with another institution and finally I moved to California to teach at Talbot Seminary so that's the short story. So your book is titled The Bible and Immigration. What led you to engage in this study? Well this is a long story. Um, there are many factors that are involved. First, there was an early interest in the topic uh, on a personal level, which then also developed into an interest on a profe- uh, professional level. It is in my generation that I witnessed a huge growth in immigration 
and change in immigration patterns in Switzerland. Beginning in the first half of the 1980s, this raised my interest as a young student. I also observed how churches and theology dealt with the issue, both from a biblical and more broadly theological point of view. And from the beginning, I found the response lacking. One-sided selection of texts, too simplistic one-to-one transfer of these selected texts to the current situation, without a clear assessment of and a due consideration of the historical differences between then and now, meaning the biblical times and our times. And then I also found that there is an unduly reducing, that's perhaps the common denominator, an unduly reducing of the complexity of the matter. Um, Also, there was a lack of taking into consideration extra-biblical pieces of knowledge that are important to assess uh, immigration issues. Therefore, I began doing more research about the matter from the second half of the 1990s. And I had my first public talks about the matter, wrote the first popular popular articles about it, and then chose the question as to how foreigners are dealt with in the Bible as the topic of my second dissertation, the Tatsia. And then there was a new impetus with the rather dramatic events related to the opening of the German borders um, for more than one million asylum seekers in the fall of 2015. So that made me think I have to continue to uh, work on this. Since then, and even more since my first-hand observations about how immigration occurs in the U.S., I planned on writing a book-length monograph about the interface of Bible and immigration. How is the Bible used and how should it be used? Because I see that while the topic is treated very frequently, it is in the overwhelming majority of cases not treated, in my view, in a satisfactory way. Um, And I would even talk here of a kind of a vicious circle. The publications on this topic are deficient in the ways that I just uh, hinted at. Uh, The statements and policies of the churches are therefore also misinformed, which feeds again into more deficient publications on the topic. So um, you could say I found my niche. Um, where can I make a special contribution that would otherwise not be on the table? That was my And the book is the answer. As a migrant myself, with personal experience about the issues both in Europe and in the US, I think I'm in a good position to make that contribution. And in addition, also my background in Old Testament studies is an important factor because the Old Testament plays a central role in the debate and in fact has much to say about migration issues. That's the short answer to your You distinguish between justice and compassion for immigrants on the one hand versus mandatory open border policies on the other. Would you speak to this difference and how you see the Bible addressing these concerns? Um, Yes, Uh, perhaps I would first like to modify your initial statement a bit Uh, in the sense that from a biblical perspective, 
um, we need justice and compassion for both immigrants as well as anyone else, which includes non-migrants, both in the sending countries and in the receiving countries. This means that I cannot biblically justify a special preference for immigrants alone that would be at the cost of hurting people in the receiving countries, which will normally be the vulnerable groups of the native-born population like those who are already disadvantaged. What I see the Bible promoting is justice and compassion for all, um, not just for this or that group, including not just for immigrants. In practical terms, however, action will be mostly needed on behalf of the vulnerable groups. And in certain circumstances, these may well be immigrants, but always also others, like, for example, the elderly or the poor or people with handicaps or the unborn or children or dissenters. And here I'm thinking about Christians in societies that are dominated by groups that favor secularism, for example. So this is coming closer to us here and the persecuted and so on. In the Old Testament, you can see this by the combination of many texts. In many texts where you see talking about help for sojourners, um, which we identified with immigrants, with help for widows and orphans and sometimes Levites. So it's always combined that that shows this point that justice and compassion is for all. There's another point here that is important. What justice and compassion mean in specific policy terms must be explored in every specific context individually. Um, and be equated with simply extending material help or with the free right of residence just as people want. So compassion and justice is not, I'm saying yes to what people want to have. That's too simple. As far as the other side of your question is concerned, the open borders, after so many years of study, I couldn't find the concept of open borders in the Bible. Nowhere. What we find are repeated calls to treat those who have been admitted to take residence as sojourners in Israel with justice and compassion. But that's not the same as requiring the Israelites to just accept anybody to reside with them. So the Bible is focused on how to deal with those who are with us and not on the question, should these be admitted in the first place? This is a question that is treated relatively seldom. Now, there are even clear biblical counterindications to the concept of open borders, and I just mentioned uh, a couple of them. Um, the first one in Deuteronomy 15, 6. Um, Israel is told that if they are blessed, they will be able to lend to many nations. So the point is, you will share your blessings not by having multitudes, 
that many nations come to you, but by you sending out um, help to the others. So that's this uh, principle here. And this again is related to the biblical principle, which is the um, distinguishing of various layers of responsibility. So the the Old Testament says, love your neighbor. It even says, love the sojourner, which is the Israelite brother in the Old Testament and those who live with the Israelites. And then in the New Testament, we have the Christian brother and then more generally the person close to you. But never is there a view on the masses on the other side of the planet. So it's always related to close personal relationship. That's a very important point. The whole migration issue, the Old Testament is dealt with on the personal level and not on the level of an anonymous state bureaucracy where responsibility is just delegated to some specialists and just supported unwillingly by paying taxes. This is all not what we find in the Bible. It's the Bible, it's personal. So that was the first um, passage that is important. The other one that speaks against the uh, open borders would be again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23, we have the um, law about who should be admitted into the congregation of the Lord. And there are some groups that are actually excluded. Can you imagine us all in these days where we talk about inclusion all the time? There is a text about who is to be admitted that is pointedly exclusionary. So we have several groups, among them the Ammonites and Moabites. They are excluded for eternity. And then we have the Edomites and Egyptians that are excluded for a while, but then are admitted. So this is completely countercultural to what we are used to. Um, and then we have this text being quoted verbatim in Nehemiah 13. So in the situation of the community of the returnees from the Babylonian exile, we have this text that says, well, we are now as Israel in a situation where we can't tolerate to be to have too many foreigners among us. So we actually have to exclude them again. Um, so that's uh, very, very interesting. And these are texts that are normally not taken into consideration when we talk about these issues, because as you see, once we look at those, things become much more complex than people normally think. Then there is another reason why open borders is not a biblical concept. Open borders would mean that Israelites could become a minority in their country. This is a small nation, and if the borders were open, they would soon be a minority, but that would undermine their possibility to serve as a distinct model for the rest of the world through which God 
wants to bless everyone. So in fact, God's goals are universal, but the means are particular. And open borders makes the reverse statement. Here the means become universal and the distinctions are erased. And so um, that's the that's a, another um, another trajectory. And it's not just against this principle of God selecting one nation and through this nation blessing. It's also part of the current cultural tendency to reverse Genesis 1. Um, Genesis 1, we have at the beginning the earth being tovavo, which is normally translated as uh, void and empty, but it really is more like it's a big mess. Everything is together in undistinguished forms, and then creation develops by making separations. So by having different realms in which different beings can thrive. So separation is a condition for flourishing and for diversity. And we have now set out on a path where we reverse this and try to mix everything together. So we are going back to the um, but you see, this is this is um, a big philosophical, cultural question, and this is all related to the question of open borders. And then a final point, if I may, here: um, God Himself establishes borders. Um, we see that in Genesis ten and in Deuteronomy thirty-two. Um, it's verse eight. 8 and uh, Deuteronomy 32, these are two texts that talk directly about the wish of God for borders. And it's only by keeping the borders that diversity is ultimately protected. It is too easy for proponents of any immigration policy to use scriptural support in an irresponsible manner, lifting selections out of context. You have a helpful section in your book that addresses the historical differences between biblical times and the present, which should enable a more responsible use of the Bible. Would you give our listeners a taste of the point you develop here? Yes. Um, first, perhaps a general point. We can't use the Bible to determine specific policies. So... Because of the historical distinction between the Bible and now, that would not work. So we need to be more modest and just look for general guidelines and principles that may work as an inspiration for how we address the specific um, issues that we are confronted with today. Now to look um, more closely into the differences, I would begin with the distinction that we see between modern states, modern societies, and um, ancient Israel, where we have, in the case of ancient Israel, a society where everything is religious. 
So we don't have a compartmentalization between the secular sphere of government and the religious sphere, but it's all in one. That means, um, as I've already mentioned, there is no addressing of these issues on a governmental level, but uh, it's all on the private, communal, familial. So life generally is organized differently in ancient Israel. Um, now that may be such a point of orientation for us. So reorienting us in the direction of the administration of more areas of life back into the personal um, area. And I don't think only about immigration here, but I also think about social welfare aspects more broadly, like taking care of children, like educating children, like taking care of the elderly. So in the Bible, this is all done on the very personal familial level. And how we could learn from this is a really important question. Now, reorienting us in the direction of doing this in the personal level, that, of course, can't be done like easily, quickly, fully. But it might just help us to redirect our, our thoughts, to enlarge our thoughts um, about these things. Now, the point of the religious character of ancient Israel in contradistinction to the modern West once there is some homogeneity in religious terms, bonds between people living there are strengthened tremendously. And that facilitates integrating people coming from outside. And it facilitates supporting one another, whether we are from the same family or not, even immigrants. Now, all the stipulations that we read about um, in the Old Testament for the support of the immigrant or the sojourner, they are predicated on the assumption that this sojourner is part of an extended family and part also of the religious congregation of Israel. Not necessarily right from the start fully but but to quite some degree and now once we realize this we see that the talk of support for the immigrant has in view a completely different context and has in view a category of people that is quite distinct from the general type of immigrant that we have today so both the societal shape of Israel and the specific social category of immigrant are so different that we need to be extremely cautious in how to do the transfer. Now, in our situation, everything looks different. Um, 
So, for example, why should a carpenter without religious affiliation who resides in Seattle feel any responsibility to help an immigrant from Somalia? And why should it be just to expect him to do so? We simply cannot transfer laws given to the religious community of a people in the ancient Near East to any current nation. This makes no sense. We can still be informed in thinking about these issues where parallels might exist and where therefore we can get some general orientation from the biblical text about these issues. But the differences have to be analyzed carefully and taken into account. And any simple one-to-one transfer must be rejected as far as I can see. Now, to put it very bluntly, I hope your listeners will forgive me. Ilan Omar is simply not the same as Noemi's daughter-in-law, Ruth. And Ruth is the prototypical example for an immigrant into ancient Israel. Now, there are more um, elements that need to be mentioned here. In biblical Israel, we are nowhere talking about mass immigration. So it's the question of numbers. And numbers matter. So it is always much easier to integrate and assimilate a handful of immigrants than large numbers. Now, large numbers are still can be handled if, if it's over long periods of time. But large numbers in short periods of time, this is completely different from uh, the biblical model. And then the other side, um, besides numbers, is the question of cultural proximity or distance. So when we are talking about ancient Israel, we are talking about immigrants basically from neighboring countries who would normally even talk more or less the same language and who are in in a similar cultural world. Again, this is quite um, different in many cases in the modern uh, situation. Now, there is some difference here between the US and Europe, um, which have to be acknowledged. But even besides these differences, um, on which I will talk uh, in a minute a little bit more, we must see that in the case of biblical Israel, the immigrants who come to stay will not be in a position, and it looks like they don't even want to, keep their original cultural identity. So they have no wish to impose Moabite or Edomite culture on Israel. And even if they wanted to, they would not be allowed to do it. And as we all know, this is different in the current situation where there are some groups of immigrants who actually do not want to 
let go their original culture and rather want to change the culture of the host country. So that's a, a really different um, issue. Now, the difference between um, Europe and the US. In Europe, immigration is predominantly Muslim immigration. And Islam is a different category because Islam is not just a different religion, but it is a whole culture. So here, um, or let's say a civilization. And for Orthodox Muslims, the, the aim is to help um, host countries by importing the superior God-given civilization of Islam. So Orthodox Muslims do not come to change their culture, but they want to change the existing. Um, now, this may happen in very friendly uh, ways. It may also happen in other ways, but that's just the mindset of an Orthodox Muslim because he is so convinced that we um, are in a hopelessness which can only be fixed by Islam taking over. So that's a very new challenge uh, of mass immigration in Europe for which there is no biblical um, model. Now, um, in the US, this is absolutely different because the immigration population is different. Um, here, the majority of immigrants continues to be Hispanic, and there is a good degree of cultural overlap between the Latin American culture and um, Anglo-Saxon culture. And the linguistic distance is not big at all. Um, so that's why things look differently in Europe and in the US. Now, even if in the US things look much more relaxed, I would say, because of this fact, um, this does not mean that there are no challenges. Uh, the demographic shift from Anglo-Saxon to Hispanic, both culturally and linguistically, also from predominantly Protestant to tendentially more Catholic, this means that there will be fundamental changes. And then there is another challenge that is uh, more pointed in the US. The US is already more fragmented. So there are already more different cultural groups side by side, which then poses the serious question of how to build an identity where people can live together as one nation. And my point is not that this is not possible, but my point is that this needs to be taken seriously as a challenge that must be faced. Otherwise, sociology tells us if there are unintegrated groups side by side, there will be huge clashes, there will be constant competition, 
and it will not work well. So that's one other point. Then another um, point that um, I need to mention here is that as opposed to the situation in biblical Israel, today immigration is part of a political um, struggle, sometimes we could even say game, um, where one side side uses immigrants for their own political purposes. Uh, that is not the case in biblical Israel. So how does this change the dynamics is a question. Then another question is um, financial interests. So when in biblical Israel an immigrant would live with a family, there would not be any struggles about allotting finances, public finances, to the integration of immigrants. It would be dealt with on the personal level. But now, this is a big financial question. There are large corporations who are interested in having a big reservoir of cheap labor. There are NGOs who, who live by having this question dealt with constantly. So. These are other issues that distinguish the current situation from biblical Israel. And the, another one is the problem that Western countries have, um, again, more accentuated in Europe than in the US, the lack of natural reproduction rates. So Western nations are basically shrinking when just looking at the native population much uh, stronger in Europe than here, but here to some degree. So then immigrants are used as means to compensate for demographic changes, um, which was again not the case in ancient Israel. And this is an ethical question. Can people be used for such purposes? Is that right? And the final remark here, the Bible does not talk about current challenges of mass immigration anywhere. Um, for some reasons, this is not acknowledged in the in most of the publications. Rather, in most of the publications about the topic, they will say, "Well, Jesus was already a maker, and so he is the model." Um, but Jesus is not a mass migration phenomenon. This is a very specific case of personal persecution, and um, Jesus is an immigrant only temporarily in Egypt, and then we'll go back home. So it has nothing to do with current questions. The patriarchs, this is a family. Um, so again, it's not about um, mass immigration at all. And their initial movement is not about search for better life, but it's about God's command to leave a place and move somewhere else. Marcus, are there any other aspects of this vast topic that you would like our listeners to be aware of? Um, well, there's so many, but I don't want to give away the whole book. <laughs> so I just uh, mentioned some of the topics that um, need to be mentioned. 
And one that I find extremely important is that there is a distinction in the Old Testament between various groups of immigrants or immigrants. Um, so that is a problem that many of our listeners who do not read um, Hebrew will not even be aware of because the translation the translations can't really mirror that distinction that the biblical text makes between different groups of um, immigrants or migrants. The two major groups are um, what we could call the foreigner. The Hebrew term is nohri on the one hand and the sojourner the ger on the other hand. So what does this mean? That means that the Bible doesn't treat everyone the same way, um, but looks at what is the special social category of these migrants. The foreigner um, who will reside in Israel for a while and then probably leave again is not really asked to integrate, but also he isn't given any rights. So integration and and support connected. And by the way, that means in the Bible, giving support is not a means to um, to make people integrate, but it's the result of integration. Now, how do we learn from this? This means that we should do the same. So we are now taking seriously this fact that we can learn about principles of orientation. So we also should make distinctions between migrants. It's not everyone the same. Not everyone comes from for the same reasons. It's not the same if someone wants to have a better job or if someone is persecuted and flees for his life. That's a, a huge distinction and that must result in differences in policies. Um, then another distinction would be um, how close is someone culturally? How much willing is someone to integrate? Those, according uh, to the biblical model, those who come to stay will always be expected to assimilate. And I think that's an important point. A functioning immigration system cannot let go the principle of assimilation. That's so crucial. And it has been common sense in the West until the 1960s. Everywhere where there was immigration, it was clear that those who come um, are expected to assimilate. Now we have shifted the rhetoric about this and talk about assimilation as a crime against humanity. Um, but it will not work, uh, as I mentioned before, if people do not find common ground by those coming from out outside assimilating to the existing culture, it will fall apart. So that's, um, that's what I see happening in some places in Europe. So that's one point. The other point that I would really like to uh, mention here is that 
in many cases, migration is a means to alleviate material problems. Um, so people are poor in many countries, and that's why they want to move to richer countries. And that's absolutely understandable. There is no, um, there is no reason to criticize people for this wish. However, um, we need to be aware of the fact that there may be other means of help, and they are worth exploring. Because moving from one place to the other is always is tremendously difficult in terms of, let's say, in social, psychological terms. The generation that leaves a place and moves to the other will never, is always in some ways lost, is always hurt. Now, they may do it for the next generations, and the next generations will have just a very good result of it. But for the migrant generation, it's it's very, very hard. So that should be a, a reason why we perhaps explore for their own benefit whether there are other avenues of help. There's other reasons why we should explore that. Um, the countries which these migrants leave will normally be worse off. Um, I just mentioned the element of brain drain. So there's a loss for the countries that leave in this way. Now there may be other kinds of losses for the countries, the sending countries. For example, in the sense that there is no pressure anymore on dysfunctional governments to prove the situation because they just export their problems into other countries. And so they just continue their corrupt and deficient policies. So that's another reason. We keep the, the poor countries poor by taking away incentives to change their system. And as we all know, these countries are not poor because they have a lack of resources, but they are poor because they are managed badly. And so we should do everything we can to incentivize changes in this bad management. Then there is the other problem um, on the receiving side. Our means, our, um, our resources are limited as well. So mass immigration is a real challenge. Most countries in the West are, as opposed to what people think, not rich. They are in huge deficits. And now, finally, I, I was um, mentioned that for years, and now, finally, people wake up to this reality. You see it now with inflation. Inflation is a sign of the dysfunctional um, state of our economy. 
we have lived for many years by just printing money, and now it's falling back on our feet. That means we are not in a position to just receive the poor from everywhere else. We are have poor, poor people here as well, and we are getting poorer by the way. That's one uh, thing. And the other thing why we should be um, careful about this avenue is that, as I mentioned, many people in a short period of time is not working well. It needs time to integrate people. It needs time to build up social cohesion. And without social cohesion, we don't have a functioning nation. And the functioning of a nation is a very delicate thing. It can break apart quickly. We had recently in the U.S. tastes about this. Uh, in the last couple of years, we now know how dangerous it is if the equilibrium of a society is not stable. And mass immigration will be a destabilizing factor. There is another final reason why we should explore other means of help, and that's the um, efficient allocation of needs. In concrete terms, if we help people in poorer areas by sending help to them, that will be between 7 and 70 times more efficient than having people come here. Um, so just in, in material terms, um, mass migration does not make sense. Okay, then another point that I would um, like to mention is we need to open the window and look at the results of immigration studies provided by other disciplines and here i think especially about sociology and psychology and economy um, now i mentioned already some of this sociology us that Cohesion is difficult, and mass immigration threatens cohesion. Um, number of immigrants and cultural distance of immigrants are important factors. They need to be taken into consideration. As far as psychology is concerned, I already mentioned that it's a huge stress for everyone who is involved in. Um, in migration and economically the net result economically of mass immigration into the US has been neutral so the argument that the US only survives economically and thrives better economically because of mass immigration is not true now, it's not detrimental either, um, broadly speaking, but then we have to be aware of the fact that there are some who win and some who lose. Those who win economically are the migrants themselves, the immigrants themselves mostly, and the big corporations. 
but then there are those who lose, and these are the lower strata of the American society, those with little education. Um, so that's the economic side. Now in, in Europe, things look differently. In, in Europe, things economically are just negative. Um, because there's a huge immigration directly into the social welfare system with large chunks of immigrants never contributing at all. Uh, but that's the uh, European thing, and the listeners will be more interested in the US. So the US is neutral, but that's, you see, looking at the whole picture, that means that's not a very, a very good point either. Now, then there is another point which I need your listeners to be aware of, and that is how important it is to um, distinguish different areas of life. There is a personal level, there is a level, and there is a state level. And these levels must not be mixed. Um, so while, what do I mean? While it may be right to help an individual foreigner personally or as a church, this is not the same as looking at the broader political societal level. So I can, as a Christian, at the same time, have compassion for my immigrant neighbor, and I should have. But at the same time, I will not support open borders. And that's not contradictory, but that's just making the distinction between the different levels and looking at the different information I get in the Bible. So as a citizen of a political entity and as a member of a spiritual entity, I may have to play different roles. Um, and listen, can probably easily understand that um, from another area of life. It's him as when I take up a weapon in the military to defend my, defend my country against an invader. Well, while I'm not supposed to take up a weapon privately to do harm to a person whom I don't like. So we have these different roles. Um, yeah, so far, uh, the most important points that I would like to add. So before letting you go, Marcus, tell us what's next on the horizon for you in terms of projects or publications. Well, um, there are too many. <laughs> the plate is full and life is short. So I might not <laughs> do all I have on the plate. Um, I have some... Um, contracts with publishers for specific books. One is a publication on the topic of messianic expectations, so completely different from these um, social issues. Messianic expectations with a special focus on the Old Testament material, of course, since I'm an Old Testament person. My studies on the divine nature of the Son of Man and on the Davidic Messiah, both published in BBR, um, together with my study on the Servant of the Lord in uh, Isaiah, they will be the foundation of the monograph, but from there 
there will be uh, considerable additions. I like this topic because it's uh, one of the foundational um, topics that combine all the New Testament and we just desperately need to see the Bible as one. Um, then there is another um, contract, a short commentary on Joshua, um, but this is uh, in German, so that will not be interested, uh, of interest for your listeners here. And then also a commentary on numbers, but also in German. Um, and then finally, the last element um, project that are currently on the way. I'm organizing a conference on biblical and theological perspectives on the pandemic. And I'm very much looking forward to the reduction of the conference papers and then their publication as a conference volume. And that will be in English, so that might be of interest for your listeners as well. Uh, that the conference takes place this June and uh, so the volume should come out next year. And then longer term, I would like to continue to work um, on the Bible and immigration in the sense that I would like to add additional studies of a similar type, like the Bible and. So the Bible and diversity is like the natural continuation of the immigration topic and very much needed here in the U.S., and perhaps even broader, the Bible and politics, who knows. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and sharing your wisdom on this important topic. Thank you very much for having me. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>